An operating framework in my mind needs to be evolved too, rather than delivered in any kind of big bang approach. You might find some elements of your operating framework can be delivered in a big bang approach, perhaps stage gates for data governance as one example, but it doesn't have to be. And I'd argue it's more effective if it's not done in that kind of approach. Unlock the power of AI with our Advancing AI Summit in Melbourne on the 3rd to the 4th of May. Join us for two days of in-depth discussions and insights from industry leaders on how Australian businesses can enhance their AI practices to achieve substantial ROI. Discover the crucial next steps for scaling productionized models and learning best practices for project prioritization, governance, model monitoring, and measuring business outcomes. We'll talk emerging developments and trends, AI optimization and impact, as well as a fresh take on critical and enduring challenges. Join us at Advancing AI at the Crown Promenade, Melbourne, on the 3rd to the 4th of May and gain the knowledge you need to drive innovation and improve operations in your business. Don't miss out on this opportunity to unlock the full potential of AI. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project focus, data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for coming back for Ops World Day 2. I hope that you enjoyed day one. Last night, over drinks at the networking session, I went around and hassled a few of you to get uh, video testimonials. And so that was that was really good to both get feedback, which obviously we're always, ke always keen to get feedback. I'm always personally keen to hear how you're finding the sessions, what you're finding the most valuable, what are you most interested in. And that helps us continually to refine the content um, that we put together for the community. Um, so thank you for the feedback. Um, thank you for the video testimonials. Uh, today I'll be chasing people around again to, um, and it's just like a 30 second uh, question to say, just how have you found the conference? Um, so please, yeah, let me know if you can to to do that. And um, one of one of the things that, that came through strongly in the feedback so far is both that um, one is that ops is an area that most of us are moving into or about to move into and that nobody's smashing it and that nobody has got this totally done. Nobody's got it totally under control. And I think that that's really important to recognize that sometimes when we, um, sometimes when we come together, uh, it's, it's, uh, Maybe I should say it's more valuable when we're more real as, as, as a community. And that's something that we, we really, and I want to really encourage in, in data futurology that when we come together for us to share the, both the good and the bad, uh, where, where we can share a lot of our learnings and experiences and help others on their, on their journey. Um, and 
what I'm saying is that we don't have to sugarcoat it. Um, and I think I think that when when we come together, we don't. But it's good it's good to have it as a reminder because we want to be exchanging ideas, um, showing what we've what we've learned, what we what we've screwed up, and letting people sort of learn from us, but also learn from each other. Um, so that's that's what that's what um, brings us together, and we're really keen in that trilogy. We're really keen to foster those type of conversations and help people uh, progress progress in the journey. When that trilogy first started, that it was a podcast, it was the the initial aim was to help practitioners in data analytics and data science become executives. So essentially, like develop professionally, and that was that was the the first and still the the core goal. And what we learned along the way is that to maximize the impact that you can have from these technologies. Um, you need to obviously be be a leader and and uh, work that place or uh, work in that area. But beyond that, it it's a it's a company wide effort. And as a result, we've we've tried to expand to make um, analytics and AI more accessible for the broader organization, but also highlight the the value um, that um, that we can deliver when we all come together from different parts of the organization. And I think, um, Connor mentioned it really well, really nicely in his talk yesterday that he said it takes a village to make this a success. And I think that's really true. Uh, and something that we want to be helping uh, create, um, and, and facilitate through, through our community. So, uh, today we're going to continue on, on ops world and, um, so in ops world, we're covering data ops, uh, ML ops, AI ops are the, the three, the three main ones. And we're looking at it from different perspectives, both from a, a leadership and strategy perspective. Uh, we're looking at, at it from a practitioner perspective and we're looking at it from a tech perspective. So what, what does the, the tech enable us to do and how can we best leverage that? Those are generally the, the three pillars that we want to cover in all of our conferences in all, all of our events in the podcast. Um, we're doing that now with the theme of Ops World, um, so covering uh, data ops, ML ops, and AI ops, and a big focus on from the ops perspective is on products, creating products, buildings, um, and maintaining the the products, which is a different mindset to projects, as um, as we saw in a few of the discussions yesterday. So uh, to kick us off today, uh, we have. Um, so we have three presentations, um, all all heavy hitters, and then we're going to coffee after that. And when we come back from coffee, we've got roundtables. Uh, no, sorry, I, I panel. I panel first, um, and then roundtables the, at the end of that block. So we, we are kicking off with uh, Ben Taylor, who is the Assistant Commissioner for Data Insights at the ATO, and he's going to speak to us about industrialized analytics at scale. Um, please welcome Ben to the stage. All right, thank you very much for the welcome, uh, Philippe. And I'm here today to talk to you a little bit about our journey towards the industrialization of analytics at scale in the ATO. 12,000 years ago, on the northern edge of the fertile crescent in southeastern Turkey, we find the oldest examples of architecture and construction known to mankind. Gebekli Tepe is a 28-acre site. Uh, that contains a range of large circular structures supported by huge stone megaliths. The earliest example of megaliths used in construction as well and predating Stonehenge by around about 8,000 8, years. Seven years ago, on a small hill above the River Nile in northern Africa, a remarkable burial site was found, and in it was the body of this 60-year-old man. The two-centimetre hole in his head is known as a trepanation, 
It's a surgical technique that's been used over the ages for everything from curing headaches and mental illness through to still being used in modern neurosurgical practices today. What made this site so remarkable was not the age of the man at his death, 60 years old, being far older than the average lifespan in the Paleolithic, but was because the hole in his skull had been made proficiently with specialized tools such as knives, drills, and flint bone scrapers. Unfortunately, this man did not survive his surgery. Going back two and a half thousand years ago, we find the earliest examples of tabular data structures that we'd recognize today. That image in the top left-hand side of the screen that you can see there is the excerpts of a diary from an official named Mera, who was inspecting Pharaoh Khufu's naval stations at Wadi al-Jaf on the Red Sea. The earliest examples of persistent tabular data storage come about a millennium later, with carvings on the walls of the temple at Karnak in Egypt. About a thousand years after the carvings on the wall of Temple of Karnak, we find the earliest examples of statistical data analysis. In 1633, local London haberdasher John Graunt published his Natural and, Political uh, Natural and Political Observations Made Upon the Bills of Mortality. To create this document, the John Graunt went around and collected the public health and death records of all of the boroughs across London to find the various causes of death and chart their growth over time specifically in regards to tracking the growth and spe uh, spread of the bubonic plague. Since the earliest examples of tabular data structures two and a half thousand years ago to the earliest examples of statistical data and analytics about 350 years ago, the pace of human abilities in regards to data analysis has increased at an incredibly, uh, incredibly fast pace. In 1970, IBM developed structured query language, which I'm sure is still the basis of a lot of your data analytics today, with the first commercial applications of SQL available in 1979, only 44 years ago. But the real tipping point for digitally enabled data and analytics came a mere 27 years ago, when for the first time, the cost of storing information on digital media dropped below that of storage on paper. In less than the last 30 years, we've seen the mass digitization, ingestion, storage, processing and presentation of data analytics, of data and analytics in organizations the world over. Data and analytics is an infant in the history of human endeavor. Many industries that we've seen are millennia old. We've seen construction, 12,000 years old. Surgery, 7,000 years old. Agriculture, 12,000 years old. Data and analytics is essentially brand new in the scheme of things. And I wonder, in 7,000 years time, assuming we haven't cooked the planet, Will our descendants look back on our early examples of digitally enabled data and analytics with the same impressive regard for the nascent capabilities we hold for 7,000-year-old surgical tools today? What's clear is that we're only at the newborn stages in regards to how to leverage data and analytics to deliver value in organizations. As Felipe mentioned at the outset, I work for the ATO, and the ATO is responsible for the taxation, superannuation, and registry systems in Australia. It's the primary revenue generation arm of the Federal Government of Australia, and not only funds the operations of the Commonwealth of Australia, but also funds significant public good, such as health, education, welfare, and defence. We collect around half a trillion dollars a year worth of revenue. There are 27,000 employees based around the country. We've got over 350 analytical and business rules models in production. And just a point of definition, an analytical model is an AI model 
or an ML model, and a business rules model is what we call our hard-coded SQL models. Our data holdings are huge and getting bigger. We have over 21 petabytes of data in our production data systems at the moment, and that's grown by over 25% in the last year. And we see further exponential increase of data storage coming as we ingest over 100 million rows of data a day, not just from our own systems uh, in the ATO, but also from businesses across Australia through the Single Touch Payroll Program and also through other government and non-government agencies. While we're ingesting around 100 million rows of data a day, we're processing in the many billions of rows of data every day. So in the ATO, I work in an area called Smarter Data, which is a business line. We're not based in IT and we're not based in business. In the ATO, we see data as the third node of a triad between business, technology, and data. Around eight years ago, the data and anal- or more than eight years ago, the data and analytics capability of the ATO was fragmented in that it was the responsibility of the various business lines across the organization. As you can imagine, this decentralized form of early analytics came with a range of challenges. So in 2015, the Smarter Data business line was created where we brought together the individuals with the data analytics capability from all of the business lines across the ATO into a single centralized function of around about 800 people. Today, we're operating with anywhere between seven and 900 individuals, depending on project demands. And we cover the entire analytics value chain from engineering to analytics, through to automation, AI and visualization, also data management and data governance. We've made early, uh, early inways into, um, into democratized data analytics by putting self-service BI tools in the hands of our people across the organization linked to gold standard trusted data sets so people can generate their own analytics and reduce some of the demand on the centralized data and analytics team. In the future, we're moving through to a fusion of data and analytics to business workflows. So uh, humans are, have, so humans in our workforce have the ability to make truly data-informed decisions across everything that they do and freeing up humans to do what they do best, which is make decisions in complex or ambiguous circumstances. Centralizing the data and analytics function in Smarter Data came with a range of challenges. When we brought together all of these business lines into a single centralized team, we found a highly variable approach to testing quality assurance, data governance and oversight. We found complex and mission critical models that were built and maintained by single knowledgeable individuals. And if that model went down and that person was on leave, we're in a spot of bother. We had challenges coordinating the delivery across a newly created branch of 800 people. And that led to a reduction in on-time delivery of features and ongoing challenges with uh, quality of products as they ran in production. But most of all, what we needed to do was we needed to drive trust. We needed to drive trust in our outputs and trust in our analytical products. Around four years ago, in our attempts to improve the scale, rigor, flexibility, and resilience of our uh, production systems, we started experimenting with a range of different types of operating frameworks. In 2019, DevOps commenced in the IT branch, a natural fit with their software engineering practices. And their DevOps uh, implementation was mainly focused on CI/CD and automation pipelines. The following year, we started experimenting and uh, thinking about data ops and model ops in the ATO, asking ourselves questions of what did these things actually mean? How are we going to implement them? And what value would they provide? 
In 2021, uh, DevOps commenced in the Smarter Data branch in our data engineering teams, where there was a natural fit with the software engineering practices from the IT division. Again, focused on CICD and automation pipelines. Last year in 2022, our work on model ops started to gain some maturity where we narrowed in on first use cases where we're building a control tower for providing model performance, uh, model performance and an efficacy observability. So we know how well the models are running, how well they're doing what they're supposed to do and any challenges of the performance of these models. Only last year, a new challenge became apparent and that was how to integrate all of these various operating frameworks across the data and analytics value chain. The need to unify these operating frameworks was the generation, it was the genesis of XOps in the ATO. What was clear is that we had a range of operating frameworks that covered thin slices of the data and analytics value chain. But these, but there was a range of problems. What was clear is that we needed all of these operating frameworks, but having all of them didn't solve all of our problems. In fact, it came it created a whole bunch of new problems. We had challenges with grappling with the scale complexity and the novelty of some of these operating frameworks, such as data ops, model ops, AI ops. But the biggest challenge that we had was that they operated in isolation on narrow segments of the data and analytics value chain. But like any value chain, the speed of movement through that value chain defines the value that you can uh, gain from any piece of work. The handoffs between the various operating frameworks was becoming a real challenge. XOps in the ATO, supports the industrialized environment for data and analytics, automation, AI, and security, covering both our build and run functions. The hallmarks of industrialization is defined, controlled, and measured processes executed at scale, delivering the right quality every single time. For us, XOPS will define how these isolated frameworks work together. So you might be asking yourselves right about now, what exactly is XOPS? And honestly, we've spent a lot of time asking ourselves the same question. If you go out there and try to find someone who can tell you what XOPS is, you won't find it. Although I'm sure you'll find a few consultants that will sell you an answer for a few hundred thousand dollars. For us, XOPS is the overarching framework that drives internal consistency between our various operating models across the entire data and analytics value chain. It seeks to deliver scale, speed, stability, and oversight of our analytical products. Whether those products are a pipeline, a table, a business rules model, a visualization, or anything else. For example, when we get a new piece of work in, DevSecOps ensures that we've got the right permissions and the right accounts created with the right privileges to do the work that we need to do while managing the risk. DevOps ensures we've got the right environments provisioned at the right time with the right code base and the right data sets. DataOps covers our systems development lifecycle and ensures that we're producing gold standard trusted data at speed. ModelOps looks after our automated pathways to production as well as performance and efficacy monitoring once our models are live. All of this is underpinned by a fit for purpose governance and assurance framework. So I'll take you through a little example of what this looks like in the ATO. The ATO is exposed to risk of GST fraud, amongst many other types of fraud, but we use GST fraud as an example today. When an organization registers to charge GST, they're entitled to a refund on any GST they've paid that exceeds that which they have collected. So let's go for a hypothetical. Let's imagine an organization spent $110,000 on materials in the last quarter, 
and made $0 of sales. They're entitled to a $10,000 refund, which is claimed through a business activity statement or a BAS. Previously, these business activity statements were processed in real time through an in-house built business rules model, a hard-coded SQL model, which was called RRE, the Risk Rules Engine. RRE would process these business activity statements in real time, but there were some challenges with RRE. It was hard to change, and it, only, and it relied on a very small subset of data that we had about businesses and business activity statements and risk. It didn't include risk outputs, for example, from other risk models we had, such as our identity crime models. With the move towards an integrated data and analytics operating framework, uh, we developed new ML models that relied on the now thousands of data points from across the organization. And instead of giving a binary yes, no answer of whether to stop the automated processing of a business activity statement to process a refund for business, we now produce probability scores on a range on a scale from zero to one and exposed those probability scores to the business, which allowed them to make risk-informed decisions as to which, uh, as to which business activity statements they wanted to treat at what level of risk and how. With this new integrated operating framework and the machine learning models in place, we're also able to um, output the results of these new ML models into our in-house developed enterprise view of client risk platform. This platform, also known as EVCR, provides a whole of system view of risk that the ATO is exposed to and can be segmented by actor, by demograph, or by risk type. Additionally, these new risk models are able to be frequently and easily retrained. One of the things we found with RRE is that when the behaviors of the subjects of the models changed, the models became less effective. And I can tell you that bad actors constantly test the models to be able to successfully perpetrate their fraud against the Australian government. The impacts of this new way of working and these new, to and these new tools and technologies were absolutely game-changing for the ATO. In three months last year, we stopped $2.5 billion worth of fraud from going out the door. If you're interested in learning more, have a look at Operation Protego. But these new tools and new ways of working, while they were protecting revenue, which was a great outcome and that was the intent, one of the other unexpected and huge benefits of uh, this way of working was the new relationships that we developed with business. We were no longer just seen as the report guys producing tabulated, uh, tabular paginated descriptive analytics. We're now proven the value of diagnostic and prescriptive analytics. We've now become strategic partners to our business lines rather than just the report guys. Implementing any operating framework is not just about the processes. It cuts across everything we do. We started off by looking at our people and how we organize them. We're now organizing our people in multidisciplinary teams with key actors across the entire data and analytics value chain. Multidisciplinary teams that are proving most effective when business stakeholders are also embedded within those teams to ensure we can solve the right business problems with the right context and quickly. We've had challenges like I'm sure everyone here has in attracting and retaining top talent. Uh, excuse me, and one of the ways that we're addressing that is by establishing and uh, continuing to work on and establishing our innovation culture so we can unlock the creativity of our developers in solving business problems quickly. There is an element of process involved in any operations framework, and government has a bad rap when it comes to being process heavy, and it's not entirely undeserved. 
one of the major concerns of our developers when we started moving towards these operating frameworks was that they were going to be sunk in processes. And that's not the intention at all. We're all about minimum viable processes. What we want to do is establish the boundaries and guardrails that people can operate within so our developers have the maximum amount of autonomy and creativity for solving business problems and fast. We had challenges with our technology as well. As I mentioned, when we centralized all of these uh, data and analytics functions in 2015, all of the technologies that they were using came with them. So we had a huge proliferation of technology. We've recently gone live with our cloud data lake and are deprecating legacy and bespoke solutions. This is driving internal consistency in regards to where and how our developers write code. This simplification and intentionality around our tech stack has been a game changer for reducing complexity for our people. This is reducing ramp up time for new people when they come on board and reducing switching costs when we pull developers off of whatever they're working on to work on the latest burning issue. The challenge of implementing any operating framework is that you still have your business as usual work to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. None of us have the privilege of pressing pause on our work in flight and our backlog to spend six months building an operating framework, then pressing play again and running according to our new operations. An operating framework in my mind needs to be evolved to rather than delivered in any kind of big bang approach. You might find some elements of your operating framework can be delivered in a big bang approach, perhaps stage gates for data governance as one example, but it doesn't have to be. And I'd argue it's more effective if it's not done in that kind of approach. The focus in the ATO at the moment is knitting together our various operating frameworks to ensure that there's internal consistency in how they run and that they're mutually self-reinforcing. So to give you an example of what this looks like in practice, so we've got our model ops framework that looks after the model monitoring for both efficacy and performance in production. We've got our data ops framework, which looks after the systems development lifecycle, including for the creation of models. For the models to be effectively monitored in production, they need a bunch of metadata baked into the, into the model. So now the capturing of this metadata is becoming a key non-functional requirement at the design stage in the systems development lifecycle. It's also a stage gate that needs to be passed before the models can be promoted to production. So in this way, we're driving internal consistency and mutually self-reinforcing operations across these various operating frameworks. Many data teams operate in a sense of chaos. Between the increasing demands from areas across the business for new features or new technical capabilities, to dealing with the uh, decades of inherited legacy tech debt that you're all dealing with, no doubt. Add to that the tech debt that each of us are building into production today as we try to rapidly meet the increasing demands of our business stakeholders. Complicating this factor is almost every business project is a data project. Almost every business project requires capturing, processing, analyzing and presenting data back to our business stakeholders. These drivers can drive an increasing sense of chaos for our teams and the feeling of being in a hamster on a wheel of ever increasing speed. Many of you today will pride you and your, yourselves and your teams on their technical excellence. But I posit that technical, ex, technical excellence is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for success in the moder modern data and analytics ecosystem. How we work together is more important than the work we do. We're all challenged with increasing demand, dealing with tech debt, driving, productions, uh, driving production stability, 
and managing the risk of the work we're doing and the data that we're handling. As I mentioned at the outset, data and analytics as an infancy is in its infancy. All of us must improve our operations. Business are up to millennia ahead of us in regards to their operations, 12,000 years in construction, 7,000 years in surgery. IT, our IT colleagues have at least 20 years ahead of us in regards to the maturity of their operating frameworks. To drive credibility in the organizations, we need to improve how we operate, driving efficiency and predictability. Whatever approach you choose to use, we all must improve our operations constantly. We need to evolve from being order takers to being strategic partners in helping the business execute their remit. I'd ask all the data leaders here today to reflect on the roles you need and want to play in your organizations. And you're going to need to drive that while building trust through driving efficiency and predictability of both your build and run functions. Thank you. Before, before you run off then, uh, there's a few uh, good, good questions uh, on Slido, if, um, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, of course. That was excellent. No worries, my pleasure. Oh, nice. Uh, so first question is, with this volume of data and model builds, how do you ensure they're serviced by accurate and timely data? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, look, we're doing a lot of work on uh, data governance and data management at the moment. Um, we've defined data quality standards, and so that helps address the accuracy component. Um, we're still building it at the moment. We're not done by any stretch of the imagination. Um, we're building Power BI dashboards that monitor our most important data pipelines for accuracy. Um, and in regards to timeliness, uh, we've got a whole bunch of monitoring of our overnight ETL jobs and the processing to ensure that we know that models have been updated. So the data governance side looks at our model uh, at our data accuracy and the uh, processing and ETL frameworks ensure that we've got visibility over the timeliness of that data. Fantastic. And um, next question is around uh, automation of decisions. So when do you and don't you have a human in the loop for actioning outcomes of predictive models? I almost always have human in the loop. Um, the impacts of getting this stuff wrong are very, very large, especially for a federal government organization. I'm sure a few people here have been watching the RoboDebt Royal Commission that's gone on lately. And these are the sorts of uh, terrible outcomes that occur when you don't have um, humans in the loop. That being said, when we were responding to Operation Protego last year, when we saw the massive increase in fraud being perpetrated against the GST system, we couldn't have human in the loop. We couldn't respond to the volume of fraud that we were receiving, which was tens of thousands of attempted fraud cases a day while having humans in the loop. What wasn't fast enough. We couldn't handle the volume. So in that instance, what we did was uh, we, we rapidly designed and tested an automated treatment model for these high-risk refunds, uh, taking a level of confidence in the model outputs that we were seeing was having over 100% strike rate of being a true fraudulent outcome. Um, and so once we had over 100% confidence, confidence that there was over 100%, not over, can't be over, once we were confident there was 100% strike rate in the outputs of the analytical models, we then removed the human from the loop for a very short term for uh, stopping these GST refunds from going out. And that's how we were able to stop $2.5 billion worth of fraud perpetrated in three months. That's amazing. Yeah, leveraging the um, 
both, you know, uh, the evolution that you guys have had between mm-hmm. rules and models and then having humans in the loop and then tracking that, how the humans in the loop use the results of the models to make the decisions and mm. tracking whether it's fraud or not and then feeding back that back in to create the um, automation of decisions at a certain point in time that's it that's awesome mate. um and then there's oh i'll go with the most voted one um so what are the challenges ATO has encountered in deprecating legacy systems and moving to a cloud data lake i i, I smile because the challenges are large uh, i'm sure and i'm sure you've got all of these challenges right um Okay, so some of the challenges that we've had in deprecating legacy systems. Um, lack of visibility on who's using them, right? It's not always clear because these are often in-house developed systems. They don't come with audit logging and they don't come with a whole range of things. Um, that's meant we're not always clear on who's using them. Because of the size of the organization, we're 27,000 people, right? It's a very, very large organization. We've been doing uh, end-user computing in regards to analytical products for a very, very long time. Some of these were unsophisticated going back in the day. We've had innovation environments and internal tenancies that allow people to self-serve their own analytical needs as a hangover from the days when data and analytics was a business line function out in the organization. So who's using the systems? What's running on the systems? How important is the things that are running on the systems? What's going to be broken if we turn the systems off? Finding mission-critical jobs running on systems that were never intended to run mission-critical systems. So those are some of the challenges that we've found. Some of the challenges very quickly in moving to a cloud data lake is carving up the uh, 21 petabytes of data, 100 million rows being ingested daily, tens of billion rows being processed daily. How the heck do you carve that up and move that to a cloud data system? So what we've been doing is taking a use case based approach and we're moving single use cases to the cloud and then we're running them in parallel on-prem and cloud to validate the outputs and the effects of the cloud processing. Once that's right, we move more. Once that's right, we move more. So it's a very, very long journey to move all of our on-prem systems to the cloud. And we're not moving everything to the cloud at the moment. We're only moving a subset of our data architecture into the cloud data lake at present. Amazing. Thank you, mate. Thank you so much. Please um, thank Ben once more. No worries. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.